and welcome to the first episode of ESG Out Loud. I'm ESG Clarity Deputy Editor Natasha Turner and coming up in today's episode I'll be speaking with Sarah Gordon, CEO of the Impact Investing Institute and Linda Scott, Emeritus DP World Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Oxford. But first of all I'm here with Natalie Kenway, Editor of ESG Clarity and we're going to chat through some of the biggest ESG news of the year so far. How are you doing Natalie? I'm good, thank you. I'm so excited that we launched this podcast. So yeah. thank you for being the driving force behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really exciting to have something else to offer ESG Clarity readers. Yeah, and it's uh, good to get together and have a chat every so often uh, in this remote working world, isn't it? How's uh, homeschool going? It's it's okay. I mean, I don't think it's as bad as, as last year, but it's probably because we've all got more into the swing of it now. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be in a similar position. Um, but let's let's uh, talk about some of the news. So we're at the start of the year. Uh, we had a lot of outlook pieces that we ran uh, over the past month or so. What were some of the main features you saw in that? Some of the key takeaways I've, I've seen in the um, outlook pieces is this year is going to be quite a big turning point in terms of ESG data and disclosure. Um, we've got lots of upcoming regulations. We've got SFDR in March, EU taxonomy, the UK stewardship code came into force in January. Um, the TCFD is becoming mandatory in the UK after the Chancellor's announcement. Um, President Biden is shaking things up in the US, the rejoining Paris Agreement, and we know that climate change and diversity are among his key priorities. So with the momentum we've had over the past few years, which was obviously... Um, accelerated in the pandemic last year I think it's just going to continue with this regulation and it's one of those very few cases where people are calling for more regulation because investment decisions are largely based on data and disclosure so this is one area where where the investment industry is pushing for more legislation more frameworks to make it clearer and more consistent so I'm excited to see how that pans out this year. Yeah, definitely. Um, it is a unique situation, isn't it, calling for more regulation? And also just the fact that there isn't as much as there is demand it seems a sort of unique area to be in. We had an article from FE Fund Info's Mikel Bates recently on our site, which said, yeah, there's definitely going to be more regulation to come because it needs to catch up with all the ESG demand we've seen. And we have uh, been covering a lot of launches and uh, people moves and things on our site as well, haven't we? Yes, so many. Um, so I think we've seen some um, lots of quite a few fixed income funds come into the market and some more alternative funds as well. We've had a wildlife fund from Jersey Finance, a Paraguay forestry fund, um, and a biodiversity ETF, a venture capital fund targeting companies with women in executive roles. So yeah, it's it's good to see diversity within fund launches. I can just see the, the sort of assets under management, the flows, all just continuing to accelerate into ESG funds. We had some um, exclusive research from Bloomberg we covered recently, and it's, it's been our most popular story of the year. Um, and it's talking about ESG assets becoming a third of the projected 140 trillion expected to be held under management in 2025. So some $53 trillion in ESG assets, which is quite a figure. Um, and it just said the drivers are the um, COVID-19 highlighting the, sustain- the resilience of sustainable business models, 
governments incorporating green initiatives in their recovery plans. And obviously, um, Biden, I think we've, we've had him being called the green president a few times. I guess all of this keeps us in jobs, doesn't it? Although, <laughs> ideally, we'd want to see ourselves out of jobs and ESG completely mainstream, right? That's yeah, ESG integration is the dream. But yes, we are certainly... Um, Keep being kept busy with the, the amount of press releases and reports and work papers and regulation and launches um, coming out. But yeah, it's all good fun. It's exciting still. And what do you think uh, is going to be the, the sort of hot topics for the next coming months? Obviously, de- regulation is definitely going to be up there. And there is a bit more of a focus on um, biodiversity as well. I believe there is. Um, a UN conference on biodiversity in March um, how that works I'm not sure yet obviously virtual but um, yeah we'll be hopefully covering that and I think there's going to be a big um, focus on health obviously this year every year starts off with the January and we had run a story on on veganism and that was one of our most most read in January um, and it just explained how if the entire population of the world were to switch to a vegan diet, some 8 million lives could be saved by 2050 and carbon emissions cut by two thirds. Um, so I think there's going to be a bit of a focus on the, uh, the food that we eat, our dietary habits, where the supply chains of the food. And we also had that story with the fun groups putting pressure on Tesco's about the health campaigns that you covered. Yes, yeah, it does seem to be an area that's moving more into focus um, for ESG. I mean, it's the first ever shareholder resolution about a health issue. So um, interesting to see if we we start to see more pressure in those areas. Um, But we've got some other other exciting stuff coming up on ESG clarity as well, haven't we? Yes, on Thursday, we're going to have a Twitter Q&A with Professor Linda Scott, who will be coming up in the podcast later. So do have a listen to that interview. Um, And then if you've got any more questions, you can ask her yourself on Twitter on Thursday. Um, The interview in this episode is uh, a sort of snapshot of the full recording, which we'll be releasing later in the month. Uh, The same with our interview with Sarah Gordon. So do keep an eye out on uh, what we have coming up. If you want to get those episodes straight to your listening device, you can um, follow us on SoundCloud and subscribe to us on iTunes. uh, And then you won't even have to think about downloading the episodes when they come out. But do have a listen and then um, ask any questions that you have to Linda Scott on Thursday using the hashtag AskProfessorScott. Great, I can't wait to pose my questions to her. Great, thanks. Well, it's good to talk to you today, Natalie, and I'll see you soon. Thank you, great to chat. So today I'm speaking with Sarah Gordon, CEO of the Impact Investing Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. It's really great to have you with us. Thank you, Natasha. Lovely to be here. Great. Well, first of all, why don't you tell me a bit about the work of the Impact Investing Institute? So we were set up, we launched officially in November 2019, so we're just over a year old. And we were set up from um, the uh, two former initiatives, both government-backed, which had worked to look at the barriers which stopped people investing with impact. And we were set up really to address those and lower those barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our mission is to... Um, sorry, our, our objectives, our aims are to increase the impact investing market, both nationally and internationally, so in the UK and outside the UK, 
but also to improve its effectiveness and accountability. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's meant we've got some um, sort of work in a lot of different areas, ranging from awareness raising, because one of the um, challenges that people have is sometimes as basic as not understanding what impact investment is. So we spend quite a lot of time engaging with different groups of investors, people, policymakers, explaining that impact investment is investment which delivers a positive, measurable social and environmental benefit alongside a financial return. Mm-hmm. Um, and a whole range of education activities we do around that, also research and evidence building, and then policy and advocacy. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things we've been working on is a uh, a proposal for a Green Plus um, sovereign bond in mm-hmm. the UK, a Green Plus gilt. And that's really um, making the point that w- we believe that you, when you're thinking about the transition to a net zero carbon economy, you also really need to be thinking about the social um, dimensions to that, both mitigating the negative social consequences but also taking advantage of the big opportunities, the economic and social opportunities that that transition brings, particularly around green skills, around infrastructure, around um, community and social renewal. Um, So we worked on a proposal with two sister organisations, the um, Green Finance Institute and the Grantham Research Institute at the LSE, and presented our proposal to government with the support of um, investors representing over £10 trillion in assets and also with the support of, of a number of influ- influential business organisations and also voices such as the the Lord Mayor, William Russell, um, the Environment Agency, Pension Fund um, and Professor Lord Nicholas Stern, who, as you, your audience will probably know, is, is a long-term um, passionate advocate for um, uh, addressing the climate emergency. So that was um, a, a very sort of constructive engagement process with government and we were obviously delighted when the Chancellor announced that um, the government would indeed be issuing a green gilt um, next November um, to coincide with the UK's hosting of the climate change conference COP26 mm-hmm. um, and that this would be the first in a series of, of green gilts. And the Chancellor spoke um, very specifically about how the proceeds from that would be used to support green jobs across the country. And mm-hmm. I think it's very important to think about that, 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 that jobs dimension to all the work that we're doing, because obviously we're about to unfortunately go into possibly the worst, one of the worst um, jobs crises um, of a for at least this generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything must be about um, helping people into decent and sustainable work. With with the Green Guild, what needs to happen now, between now and, and November? How can the industry be preparing? Um, I mean, the industry, we know, is incredibly... Um, there's, there's great appetite for mm-hmm. uh, this the instruments like this. I mean, one of the things that we feel is that there are whilst there's a a lot of appetite among clients and among um, individuals and institutional investors for sustainable investment vehicles, there's actually not enough vehicles available, particularly for um, institutional investors who need to invest at scale. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we have a focus at the Impact Investing Institute on 
mobilising big pools of capital, and that has meant a particular focus on pension funds. Now, if you're a big pension fund, you need um, you need investment opportunities at scale. And one of the challenges has been that there haven't been enough impact investment opportunities at scale available. Right. So the UK government now joining the 16 other other governments which have issued green um, sovereign bonds that's a real it's a, it's a really very concrete way of growing the market mm-hmm. and responding to that appetite of big pools of capital for this type of instrument and I think the other you know one of the um, other important things we feel is that when um, for example Belgium and Ireland issued their green sovereign bonds you then saw a significant rise in um, green and labelled issuance, bond issuance by local authorities and businesses in Ireland and Belgium. And so it, 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 the government taking this action is a, is a kind of, it's something that then corporates and um, municipalities can then emulate. Um, so I think, you know, you're going to see across this space a big surge in green bonds and in and in what we would like to see is you know green bonds that really take into account um as i say the social co-benefits that come along with the with the transition to net zero mm-hmm. a lot of what's happening in the world of impact investment is it's a mixture of push and pull um you know there's a lot of client demand as i was saying earlier for sustainable investments but there's also a lot of regulation and policy that's coming down the track mm-hmm. for asset owners and asset managers that mean they really have to be thinking about how to integrate impact investment and thinking around impact into mm-hmm. their um, operations um, and we believe that one of the one of the things that uh, we advise as a as a result of the work around uh, fiduciary duty is to think uh, very for, for trustees to think very carefully about how they can integrate sustainability into their statements of investment principles. It seems to me one of the sort of major worries is kind of a developing harmonised reporting standards and, and various frameworks. As advocates for this, what, what would you say needs, needs to be done? The re- reporting agenda has really moved on, only just in the last few months, in fact. So... Um, we know, um, and, and I think this is what you're alluding to, that individuals and investors and businesses are struggling at the moment because they've got a sort of panoply of different ways of reporting and measuring mm-hmm. um, their impact. And, you know, these are either sort of proprietary systems that have been developed in-house by investors, by asset managers, or, you know, there are some special sets of met. But really, it's just like it, it reminds me of the sort of Wild West, really, before you had harmonised reporting standards for financial performance, which, of course, is a relatively we forget, but it's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, you know, international financial reporting standards are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're relatively recent. Mm-hmm. And it takes this period of lots of initiative and lots of energy before you then coalesce around a set of agreed global um, standards and principles. So what's happening um, now is that I'm going to just to highlight a couple of really relevant developments in the last few months. Um, you've had a statement of intent by the five 
uh, sort of five of the most important and influential global organisations working on sustainability standards. You've had a statement of intent by them to work together towards um, a converged set of global sustainability standards. You've also had um, uh, SASBI, um, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, um, which is going to merge with um, the IRRC, um, which is another sort of a, a sort of institutional development that needs to happen to make um, to make a, a globally harmonised standards work. And then you also have the IFRS Foundation, which is the foundation which oversees international financial reporting standards. It currently has a very thought-provoking consultation paper out on asking the questions, should it, should it set up a sustainability standards board? Um, and if so, what should its remit be? Should it cover, um, where should it start? So internationally, you've got a lot of um, sort of movement and, and developments that I think will lead relatively soon to converged global standards for mm. reporting and measuring impact, which is incredibly important. And then nationally in the UK, you've also got some a, a lot of um, uh, sort of relevant activity. So the um, FRC, the Financial Reporting Council, is also consulting on a on it what it's called what, a, a paper which it's called the Future of Corporate Reporting. And one of the things it's proposing in that is to recommend to large listed companies that they must issue what they're calling a public interest report which would be covering the positive and negative impacts which they have as a business on their wider stakeholders, so the environment, society, suppliers, customers. Um, and we strongly support um, that idea and indeed are hoping to work with a number of um, large listed FTSE 100 companies um, on what that public interest report, that impact report would actually look like. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Sarah. It's been very insightful. Thank you, Natasha. I've thank enjoyed you. it. Great. Today I'm speaking with Professor Linda Scott, who, among other accolades, is Emeritus DP World Chair for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Oxford and author of Royal Society's shortlisted book, The Double X Economy in which she details global gender inequality and argues women's economic inclusion will benefit everybody. It's great to have you with us today, Linda. Thank you, I'm glad to be invited to party. Let's start with um, women's economic empowerment and how that will benefit everybody then. So hopefully ESG investors don't need convincing on why women's economic empowerment benefits everybody, but could you give some examples as to the how Okay, so I think that, that the argument that um, that empowering women economically, or for example, bringing them into the labor force in bigger numbers, um, I think is fairly well recognized at this point that that stimulates growth. That that's it's very widely demonstrated at this point. Um, I think though that people uh, sort of accept that maybe on faith, or you know, go ahead and go along with it, but they don't really understand what the mechanisms are. Um, so it's things um, because you have to get in there and look at what are the things, for example, that keep women out of the labor force. And if you're in, for example, an agricultural economy or a more traditional economy in an emerging market, um, there'll be um, there'll be 
not just cultural norms, but um, rather some unpleasant practices, okay, like uh, domestic violence uh, to uh, keep women from going outside the home, for instance. Um, uh, even um, local strictures against, for instance, married women. Married women is married women going into the workforce is what really drives that curve. And, um, and so you have to be realistic. Um, the unpaid care burden, for example, is is quite a big reason. Um, street violence is quite a big reason. Sexual assault in the workplace. Um, that that it's not just a matter of training them and encouraging them. You have to look at what is actually holding them back and not just project on them what you think it might be. And that is what tells you then how the causal mechanisms are working to lead you from the position they are now to getting them into the, into the paid labor force, for instance. And so it's really important to be authentic about trying to understand those causal mechanisms. And sometimes they're rather unpleasant. Uh, but in the broader sense, what we have is empowering women economically uh, does stimulate, does contribute to prosperity. And that's partly because it contributes to growth and better company performance actually. But it is also because when you, when you level the playing field for women, you significantly uh, ameliorate or reduce or eliminate some fairly significant um, social problems, right? And uh, some things that cause uh, not only additional costs, like domestic violence is extremely costly to countries. And just by eliminating that, you would make a pool of funds available that could be uh, invested in things that were more productive. Okay, um, and then for example, human trafficking. Human trafficking is seventy-one percent female, uh, and it comes out of the fact that females are uh, economically vulnerable. Now, human trafficking is part of international crime. Uh, it's a very serious destabilizing force. Uh, it creates geographical risk. So, um, so all of these things that the um, uh, when you have better uh, gender balanced workplaces, for example, they tend to be less hostile, less toxic, less um, every every man for himself. Um, they're therefore more pleasant workplaces and more productive workplaces. Um, when you have more gender balance in a board, you're likely to have more transparency and accountability. So, um, so all of those things taken together make for uh, both work environments and national economies that are just friendlier to everybody because they're more stable, they're more transparent, um, they have more funds to reinvest in a, in a positive way. There are definitely indicators that you can watch for at the country level. In fact, that is one of the things that is really driving, was driving initially this whole women's economic empowerment movement was that we have had a rather sudden influx of data where we had none before, mm -hmm. that when you put it together, not only allowed you to compare nations, okay, across on gender equal measurement, gender equality measurements, but also to, um, you know, kind of diagnose and track their progress. Uh, and these indicators um, are, are pretty reliable. So for example, in the most gender unequal countries, uh, you have more poverty and more conflict, right? Poverty and conflict are not good for countries and they're not good for people. And so if you can measure improvements in the gender equality, you should be able to measure other outcomes. Mm -hmm. 
Now, in the developed countries, we also have to be mindful of uh, how big the problem is and how quickly it's reasonable to expect it to move. Okay, so as much as I would like to see the gender gap closed by next year, that's not going to happen even if everybody really works on it because it's such a huge problem. You can't move the needle that fast. There are too many people who are in your, if you will, your sample. So, um, so you have to be, you know, realistic about what it is you're using as your measurement. Mm -hmm. I think, for example, board diversity is relatively quicker to see. And on, on board diversity and pay gaps, um, in the UK, the financial sector often doesn't come out very well in the sort of annual gender pay gap reporting uh, flurry. Um, what is your advice for leveling the playing field for women in this industry very broadly? Obviously, there's some things that are problematic within the companies that would need to be addressed. Okay, but let me talk first about the, what I see as the bigger, broader problem that's causing this. Because what you're seeing in these numbers that the UK puts out, uh, and I personally I think it's very telling that they didn't do it this year, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a good sign. Um, that, um, that when you have numbers like that, when across the board, actually, women in Britain are more qualified, they have more credentials than men do, and yet you're not seeing them advance and you're not seeing them paid the same. That means, that has to mean that there's something systemic going on because it's in the aggregate and people tend to treat the problem as on an isolated individual basis. And um, within companies, uh, particularly, and even women, you know, then are persuaded to think it must be something about them. But it's not. It's systemic. And it's too big for one. I mean, one company can solve their own problem, maybe, but they can't solve it for everybody else in the sector. Okay. And also, one of the things that the British data shows is that while the financial sector is a, is a standout for inequality, the inequality is pretty much across all industries, all occupations, all levels. And that too is telling you there is a systemic problem and it is something about sex discrimination because you find it everywhere, okay? It's not, you can't attribute it to, as it's often done, women pick the wrong industries to work in because all the industries are doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's the case, that's a really broad scale problem. And that, and this is my, you know, my first point is you gotta, be willing to call out the government. Uh, it is only the government who would be able to make the kind of broad scale impact that would be necessary to close those numbers. And personally, although I do think transparency on this is a useful thing, um, but what the British have done, British government has done by making people report out is good. At the same time, um, they're they're trying to shame the companies into doing something that there's really um, there's no downside to them not doing it because they know that the British government is not going to enforce the equality laws. They simply are not going to do it. So first, I would say go to the government. Right, the second thing is is that you need to get over the idea that there's something wrong with the women that you have to fix, that they don't have enough training or they are intrinsically poor leaders or some other. In fact, we should not accept those excuses ever. Okay, there, The data do not support the notion that there's something remedial that needs to be done about the women. And people are using that as a way to not look at the real problem. 
And um, in the financial sector, you have mostly male, very male-dominant uh, workplaces. And male-dominant workplaces create their own problems. And it's important to look with a clear eye at what those problems are and not try to tell yourself some baloney about, you know, unconscious bias and blow it away, you know, because we know, for example, that diversity programs in situations like that get sabotaged and undermined by whoever's in the majority. And that the masculinist culture that, that um, occurs uh, in those environments is quite gender unfriendly. And by the way, it's unfriendly to men as well. I mean, they're toxic. Uh, in that situation. So, yeah, so you got to be more realistic. You got to be willing to call out the problem. So, um, let's talk a little bit about some uh, more specific points in your book, then, if we can. Um, so there is a part where you talk about gender lens investing, which will be, um, you know, on the radar of many of our readers. Um, and you mention a need for kind of new financial indicators. Can you tell me a bit about that? Right. Okay. So, it depends on what area of investment or of the economy that you want to do this in. Okay, so one of the things is just to, for example, have a way of evaluating, there's been a lot of attention to this, have a way of evaluating the performance of major publicly traded companies. And in the book, I talk about the Bloomberg Gender Equality Index. There are other indices besides that. But having an index like that and being able to show how those companies that rate well perform as opposed to companies that do not rate well, right? Gives, it gives those companies a chance to shine. And actually, um, the evidence suggests that they probably will at least perform as well and probably better. And so that then, you know, gives people an incentive to throw their money to that, right? So that's one thing. Um, another thing is when you're, if you're doing something like investing, sitting in some kind of, I don't know, bond, let's say bond for a municipal transportation system. Okay, one of the things that's a different financial measure that you need to look at is you need to bring into your uh, evaluation model something like the value of safe commutes, public danger, um, attacks on women. And that means you're going to design that transportation system a little bit differently. But people have tended not to think about those as uh, investments that pay back. That actually, if you go ahead and you cost out what it means to have an unsafe public transportation system, you're going to find out there are some fairly, from the city's point of view, some fairly significant problems, costs, lost opportunities with that. So you have to have a new financial indicator that plans for that, you see. Um, It's also a matter of just being gender aware, for example, um, there was one company that I knew that was working with governments um, to issue um, cards to the women so that they, uh, debit cards to women so that they could pay them directly their government benefits and they could be taken out as the women needed them during the month. Well, it was unexpected that what happened was is that the women got more of the money um, to actually apply to poor family needs and so so forth, because as long as they were sending out checks, uh, the women were having to go into check cashing places where men hung around the door waiting to rob women of the cash as they came out, okay? And so there was a very definite financial advantage to having done this that went well beyond the savings of paper checks, 
right? And that it requires understanding the problem and, and anticipating the gender thing. Now, um, another one would be, um, you know, I have I have seen, for example, uh, Diageo in um, South Africa um, started um, setting aside. They made venture capital investments and they started setting aside some to go to women. Uh, and you have to set it aside and you have to evaluate it a little bit differently because we know that in a supposedly gender neutral situation where you just sort of say, well, I'm making this money available to everybody, the gender bias in the financial system will ensure that most of the money goes to men. And that's just a fact. So if you don't, you know, ring fence it, um, you're not going to achieve a goal. The other thing is you have to recognize that women have, have, barriers and risks to success in business that men don't have, right? And that's going to mean that their growth is going to have a different pattern, right? Not necessarily that it's going to be less, but it might be, for example, slower, all right? And so you need to invest, you need to evaluate it with a different model of expectation. Um, then there's also the whole question of, uh, you know, like you're a social impact investor or something like that and you're, or, or you're a big company and you're investing in uh, areas like women's health or girls' education, which there's a good bit about. And, and there's a whole different set of measurements you need to make in that situation. It's a lot of companies go in and they want to measure, for example, they want to invest in women's entrepreneurship and they want to measure it as increased sales, right? And that has not turned out to be wise. So. Mm -hmm. um, ESG investors um, are looking at the sort of whole supply chains and possibly there's more um, kind of focus on this um, now than, than there has been. I mean, we've seen things like the Boohoo scandal has thrown some of these things um, more into the light. But can you explain how this can affect women and what some of the challenges are when, when you look at supply chains? Yeah, okay. So I've done a lot of work with supply chains, but it's very important to be sure you know what you're, 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 being stipu you're stipulating what about the supply chain you want to that you're talking about before you even start the conversation because um, you can be talking about the impact on employees in factories, for example, or in the fields, all right? Or you can be talking about integrating female entrepreneurs in as suppliers in their supply chain. And those are two very different uh, agendas. And some companies do try to do both, um, but you're gonna have to treat them differently, evaluate them differently, obviously. Um, most of my work has been in the second one, entrepreneurs integrating them into the supply chains. Um, it is good to know, I think, that both of these things, when you, uh, because if you get women into the supply chains, you're going to improve that woman's um, income, but she's also going to hire people, right? And that puts more income in. And it's, it's more likely that those women will hire other women and that they will promote them and groom them and train them. And so that has a very good effect pretty quickly on your women's economic empowerment and the good that's doing for the economy. It's also, um, so that they have, yeah, they have issues where uh, the main issue is access to capital. Um, and that has to do with their historical exclusion from owning real property. It's not just because they, select, you know, they self-selected into being landless. Um, and so they have less capital. And for that reason, they can't go into the high capital uh, industries. And so to say, well, I'm not going to invest in women because they're in low capital industries that don't grow because that's chicken and egg, 
right? If everybody invests over on one side, then by definition, the other side's not going to grow because they're starved for capital, right? So there's the, the capital is the main thing, and we do find a lot of prejudice among the banks and institutions like the World Bank are working on ways of trying to reduce that. Thank you so much for your time today, Linda. It's been great to speak to you. Well, I enjoyed it very much, and I hope I um, gave you some good information for your listeners. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.